0: Did you know? In earlier versions of Donkey Kong Country, Cranky Kong was actually a nice old man and not mean spirited at all. He'd say things like, Diddy, you young pup. Boy, I can't believe how much you've grown. Instead of things like, You wouldn't know a good game if you were in it. Another change is that the first level of the game, Jungle Hijinx, was originally named Jungle Japes. The name Jungle Japes was later used as the name of the first level for Donkey Kong 64. Donkey Kong Country 2 had its fair share of changes as well. It was originally going to be a virtual boy game. The virtual boy version didn't get very far in development, only getting as far as a working title screen. Development shifted to the Super Nintendo when it became clear that the Virtual Boy was a flop. The German version of Donkey Kong Country 2's instruction booklet shows a character named Mr. X along with some text stating, no one knows him or has seen him anywhere before. Mr. X can also be seen on the front cover of the game's official German strategy guide and in issue 76 of Nintendo Power. Mr. X never appears in the game and there are two theories as to why. The first theory is that that he was intended to be a boss for the gloomy Gulch area but was replaced with creepy crow and the second theory is that he's an unused earlier version of the enemy cackle as both have no legs appear to be undead pirates and have the same type of sword. The acclaimed Donkey Kong Country track aquatic ambience had trouble being implemented and might not have made it into the game. Composer David Wise was experimenting with ways to maximize use of the Super Nintendo's limited amount of RAM when making the track and ran into multiple issues. Wise said that the track was reprogrammed several times over the course of five weeks, but that it was ultimately worth the effort. The equally acclaimed Donkey Kong Country 2 track, Stickerbrush Symphony was almost scrapped as well. The track was originally composed as a follow-up to Aquatic Ambience, but a decision was made to not include any serene water levels like what the first Donkey Kong Country had. The track was reused for the game's bramble levels, and according to Wise, it seemed to fit and was a good juxtaposition to the difficulty in negotiating through such a hard stage of the game. During development of Donkey Kong 64, the team at Rare encountered a game-breaking bug. The game would randomly crash if played on a standard N64, but for whatever reason, the game would run correctly if the N64's RAM expansion pack was plugged in. Rare couldn't find a way to remove the bug and made the decision to ship a free RAM expansion pack with every copy of the game. This was the only way they could stop the glitch, and according to developer Chris Marlowe, it ended up costing them a fortune. There were also several changes during Donkey Kong 64, development. One of the changes is that the Kong's weapons were originally real guns, opposed to the comical fruit and nut based weaponry seen in the final game. It's thought these changes were made to avoid controversy and ensure the game received a child friendly rating. Early screenshots of the game also show that Donkey Kong's treehouse originally had a shower stall in it with a poster of Banjo and Kazooie on the side. Interestingly, Donkey Kong appeared on a picture in Banjo's house in the beta build of Banjo Kazooie, but was replaced in the final version with an image of Banjo's sister, Tootie. Banjo-Kazooie and DK64 have more connections. The text Ice Key can be found in DK64's ROM. The Ice Key was one of Banjo-Kazooie's stop and swap items. This could mean Rare had plans of using the feature for Donkey Kong 64 as well as the Banjo-Kazooie games. The Donkey Kong 64 level Fungi Forest was originally planned as a level in Banjo-Kazooie. The level used to have the slightly different name Fungus Forest and wasn't implemented in Banjo-Kazooie because of time constraints. The level was finished and put into DK64 along with the level's original The background music for DK Island also came from Banjo-Kazooie's beta, and the track was originally titled Lost. Part of the game's famous DK rap was later censored, a line of the song that refers to Chunky Kong saying, but this Kong's one hell of a guy. The word hell was replaced with heck in later versions of the rap. One last piece of audio trivia for DK64 is that the game's composer Grant Kirkhope provided the voice of Donkey Kong. Nintendo have since reused the samples of Grant's voice in Mario Golf Toadstool Tour, Mario Kart Double Dash, Mario vs. Donkey Kong, the Game Boy Advance versions of Donkey Kong Country, and even an E3 demo version of Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. There's also a track in a Killer Instinct arcade promotional video that sounds almost identical to the track for Funky's Flight in Donkey Kong Country. Since the two games were developed around the same time, this either means that Killer Instinct borrowed the track from Donkey Kong Country, or that the track was originally intended for Killer Instinct. The opposite happened with Banjo Pilot, as it actually started off as a Diddy Kong game called Diddy Kong Pilot. It was reworked during development as Rare were acquired by Microsoft and no longer had the rights to use Nintendo characters. Early versions of the game even had playable Mario characters like Mario, Peach, Yoshi, Wario, Bowser, and Toad. The characters were removed in later versions and only Donkey Kong characters were playable. Rare had plans of including a character named Redneck Kong, but he was replaced with Candy. This was likely done to avoid controversy i
1: Did you know? The Japanese release of Donkey Kong Country has many differences from the International release, and these differences can be seen the moment you start up the game. The Japanese version has a completely redone title screen with artwork taken right from the Japanese box art. Unlike the International version's tiled title screen, which only allowed for a total of 16 colors per 8x8 tile, the Japanese title screen is rendered in an 8-bit color depth mode. This allowed for 256 colors on screen, resulting in a much higher quality image. This version also adopted to several enemies. In all other versions of the game, the Rock Croc enemies are invulnerable to any sort of move, but in the Japanese version, they can be killed by DK's hand slap attack when curled up into a ball. Interestingly, this would later be possible in the Game Boy Advance version of DKC. Another change is that it now takes Diddy Kong two hits to kill Mankey Kongs. The first hit will make Mankey Kong flinch with a single frame of his death animation, pushing Diddy back, much like with the and army enemies. The Japanese version also has numerous changes made to levels, most of them making the game easier with things such as extra DK barrels added and enemies that were either repositioned or removed altogether. A rather obscure change that was made is in the Blackout Basement level. The Japanese level stays dark for 46 frames and is illuminated for 77 frames, compared to the international version which is 62 frames for both light and dark. These changes are extremely unusual, as it's often Japanese-developed games that are made easier when brought to the West. The map icon leading to DK's treehouse is also removed in this version, likely because it seemed unnecessary as the player can access that part of the map anyways. Donkey Kong also has several animations that went unused, including an alternate victory animation when he wins a bonus game or defeats a boss, and an attacking animation strikingly similar to the one DK uses in Donkey Kong 64. Cranky Kong has a walking animation that was scrapped but would later be recycled in the GBA remake of DKC. Cranky also has a large amount of unused level advice and would originally give tips for nearly every level in the game. While we're on the subject of Cranky, many fans are unsure about how he relates to Donkey Kong. This is mostly due to different contradicting sources. The Donkey Kong Country series states that Cranky is the current DK's grandfather, but in Donkey Kong 64, Cranky refers to DK as his lazy, good-for-nothing son, and it seems as though Rare wanted to maintain consistency with this statement, as one of the head writers of the game, Lee Loveday, stated that the current DK is in fact Donkey Kong Jr. grown-up, and any statements that say Cranky is his grandfather were to be ignored, though given Lee Loveday's sense of humor, some fans aren't sure whether to take this seriously. Dinky Kong would later become Kitty Kong Kong's Japanese name, and much like Diddy, Kitty went through several different names before his was finalized. Some of the names suggested were Baby Kong, DJ Kong, and Tiny Kong. The name Tiny Kong would be given to another Kong character introduced a few years later. At the time of Microsoft's acquisition of Rare, the studio had three known Donkey Kong games in development. As Rare no longer had the rights to use Nintendo characters after the buyout, all three games were being retooled to feature Rare's own IPs. Donkey Kong Coconut Crackers became It's Mr. Pants, and Diddy Kong Pilot became Banjo Pilot. But the one title that never saw release in any form was Donkey Kong Racing. For over a decade, information about this game was limited as it didn't get very far in development. But recently, a number of details have surfaced about it, as well as its retooled iteration, Saberman Stampede. In February 2014, a NeoGAF member under the alias Shiggy posted several pieces of artwork from unreleased Rare titles. Two of these games were Donkey Kong Racing and the game DK Racing was turned into, Saberman Stampede. The concept art for Donkey Kong Racing reveals that Cranky Kong and Lanky Kong were going to be playable characters, and that traditional go-karts were considered at one point during development. Almost two weeks following the artwork leaks, more information about these titles were released in an interview with former Rare employee Lee Musgrave, who the lead designer for Stampede and who also created Donkey Kong Racing's trailer. He talked about how Donkey Kong Racing wouldn't limit the player to a single animal, saying that you would jump between different sized animals with different properties during a race. And when the game was reworked as Saberman Stampede, how many extra features were added to the initial design? Over the course of 18 months, Saberman's Stampede went from being strictly a racer to a more open world adventure in the vein of Diddy Kong Racing, and one of the key mechanics of the game would be raising the animals you rode. This mechanic would eventually take center stage as the project continued to evolve, to the point where Musgrave described it as a cute version of Grand Theft Auto set in Africa. Due to lack of focus from the team and the fact that while it had some interesting mechanics was missing other important features such as a story, the game was eventually cancelled, ending development on what started out as a Donkey Kong themed racer. Musgrave is quoted in another interview saying, I still look back to the early racing game design and think we could have done something great with that. Shortly after Rare finished work on the GBA port of Donkey Kong Country 3, they thought about making an all-new DKC for the Nintendo DS, as they felt like they had a good amount of experience with handhelds after porting the trilogy. However, it was merely a thought they had, and they decided that making an all-new game on hardware they were still learning about wouldn't be the best idea, choosing to tread familiar ground by porting Diddy Kong Racing instead. Also considering that Rare was owned by the competition, Nintendo may not have felt comfortable having them revive a franchise they themselves owned. Eventually, Donkey. Donkey Kong Country 4 would become a reality in the form of Donkey Kong Country Returns, which was released exactly 16 years after the very first DKC. Both games were released in North America on November 21st, and the games that made up the trilogy would also be released in late November. The newest addition to the series, Tropical Freeze, was slated for a November release in 2013, but was pushed back to February 21st of the following year. The release date still holds some significance, however, as 2014 marks the 20th anniversary of the Donkey Kong Country franchise eyes. Did you know? Similar to how Cranky Kong was an aged up take on the original Donkey Kong, Diddy began as a redesign of Donkey Kong Jr. In 2015, Rare designer Greg Mayle shared pictures from a book titled Donkey Kong and the Golden Bananas over Twitter, showing some early concepts for Donkey Kong Country. One page shows Diddy while he was still proposed as an update to Jr., but Nintendo felt this redesign was too different to what came before. They asked Rare to either keep Jr.'s old look or to make this new design an entirely new character. Rare felt the design fit their update to Donkey Kong's world and made him a new Kong. After a few naming attempts, they settled on the name Diddy, a slang term for small in some parts of the UK. Diddy's final design was done by Rare artist Kevin Bayless, who he reached out to for further details. Bayliss wanted a friendlier looking design in contrast to Donkey Kong's more ill-tempered look. He also gave Diddy a tail so he could grab onto objects or even use it as a spring. Diddy's shirt and hat were added to make him stand out from the greens and browns of the backgrounds, and were colored red to match up with DK's tie. The clothing idea also came from a series of UK commercials for T brand PG Tips, where chimpanzees were dressed in various clothes. The chimps were provided by Twycross Zoo, located very close to Rare and is also where the team gained inspiration for other DK characters. Diddy was made to serve as a second hit for the player, one that wouldn't get in the way. For Country, the team wanted the game's screen to be as clutter free as possible. Taking inspiration from Mario's changing in size, males said Diddy represented a visual Health bar, as well as making the player not feel alone on their journey. As the series progressed, Player 2 became more integral to the gameplay than just soaking up a hit. During development of Donkey Kong Country 2, many names were brainstormed for its potential title. Possible names ranged from Diddy Kong Country and Kremlings the New Batch, to Diddy Kong in Space, even though he's not, and Diddy's Quest for a decent name for his game. The final title became Diddy's Conquest, a pun on the term Conquest that also referenced Diddy stepping into the limelight. Many fans mistakenly refer to it as Diddy Kong's Quest, though early footage of the game shows it did take on that title for a short time. Diddy's character design was still receiving some tweaks even at this point. Nintendo veteran Shigeru Miyamoto and some of his staff sent sketches of logo ideas for Diddy and Dixie's hats, though Rare used none of them. Instead, they inscribed the Nintendo logo on Diddy's hat and gave a Rare pin to Dixie. Though Dixie's pin disappeared after Rare was sold to Microsoft, the Nintendo branding has stuck with Diddy to this day. This game also marked the debut of the yellow star pattern on Diddy's shirt, though these changes wouldn't be seen in-game until the Nintendo 64 era. Speaking of the N64, Diddy Kong Racing wasn't a Diddy-centered game until very late in development. In the months leading to its release, the game was known as Pro-Am 64, an indirect update to the RC Pro-Am series that featured Timber the Tiger in the lead role. Banjo-Kazooie was planned to be Rare's big holiday title for 1997, but was delayed to the following summer to reach its full potential. This left Rare in a bit of a bind, suddenly Pro-Am was their Christmas game and they weren't sure if the brand was strong enough to grab people's attention. The team. Did- decided to rebrand the game using Diddy Kong, though Nintendo gave them the choice to pick either Diddy or Donkey Kong for the lead role. In an interview with Nintendo Life, artist Lee Musgrave said, Nintendo enjoyed the fact that we chose Diddy Kong over Donkey Kong. I think that it was us trying to build on the fact that Diddy was ours and DK was theirs. The team then changed a few things around to attach it to the new IP better, with Musgrave admitting it was a bit of a rush job. Having little competition in its release window, Diddy Kong Racing was the center of attention for Nintendo's marketing. It sold nearly 5 million copies and stands as one of the top 10 best-selling games for the N64. There were several attempts to create a follow-up to Diddy Kong Racing, with each one failing to release as intended, if at all. Following Rare's sale to Microsoft, Diddy Kong Pilot was retooled to Banjo Pilot, and Donkey Kong Racing was cancelled outright. Later, around April 2004, Studio Climax created a GameCube pitch called Diddy Kong Racing Adventure, a project that wasn't publicly known until November 2016, when gaming Archivist Andrew Borman obtained the prototype and published a video on it like the original it would have featured an adventure mode Complete with boss battles and multiple vehicle choices a roster of 14 was planned and climax hoped to use the existing cast Plus characters from Banjo Kazooie and conquer in the event a character was unavailable a Kong family member would take their place Each character would have also had their own special moves such as timber unleashing a sonic wave roar attack and tip Top using a ring of turtle shells Other proposed features included weather plus day and night settings, several multiplayer modes, and the ability to change vehicles mid-race, an idea similar to Donkey Kong Racing's Animal Mechanic. The prototype was shown to Nintendo, but they passed on it. One likely reason is that the rights to Diddy Kong Racing are split between Nintendo and Rare, and it may have been seen as too much of a legal hassle. Diddy made his debut in the Mario series with Mario Golf Toadstool Tour. He only started appearing in non-rare Nintendo games after the two companies parted ways, further showing that despite Nintendo's ownership, Diddy was treated as a rare property. Before then, Donkey Kong Jr. would appear in spin-off games, and it may have stayed that way had Rare not left. Early icons for Mario Kart Double Dash reveal that Jr. was planned for the game before Diddy took his place. Diddy also didn't have his own trophy in Super Smash Bros. Melee, whereas Jr. did, as well as Dick's Kong and King K. rule. Diddy would later become part of the Smash series starting with Brawl, making him the first and only Western character to be playable as of Smash Wii U and 3DS. During Rare's time with Donkey Kong, programmer Chris Sutherland provided the voice for Diddy. His samples were reused in several later games with the most recent being Mario Golf World Tour for 3DS where they were used alongside Diddy's current voice, Katsumi Suzuki. Diddy Kong is also playable in more Donkey Kong Country games than Donkey Kong himself has been.
2: Did you know? While official Nintendo consoles found their way into China in the 1980s, often by way of Hong Kong, they were incredibly expensive to Chinese consumers at the time. Consequently, many Chinese fans' first memories of Nintendo began with one of the many Chinese Famicom knockoffs. One of the most popular Famicom bootlegs was the Subor Video Game System, also known as Hong Bai or the Red and White Machine. These clone systems were so prolific that superstar Jackie Chan himself endorsed Subor's line, known as the Little Tyrant. This was a series of computer keyboards marketed to parents as study aids to teach children programming. In spite of this, the Little Tyrants came with built in Famicom or Super Famicom clone systems, complete with cartridge slots and knockoff controllers. Regardless, Subor held an estimated 80% of the gaming market in China in the 1990s, and with the help of their Famicom clones, they earned revenue upwards of one billion won. This model would not last, however. Following parental outcry that video games were destroying the minds of the nation's youth, China's government stepped in and passed the Feedback Regarding the Launch of Special Operation on Video Game Arcades bill in June 2000. Despite the bill's name seeming to target arcades, it also addressed video game consoles, stating, The manufacturing and selling of any electronic gaming equipment, plus its parts and accessories headed to China, will be stopped immediately. The import of Electronic game equipment, plus its parts and accessories, through other forms of trade is strictly limited. This ruling forever changed the gaming landscape in China, leading many Chinese consumers to switch to PC gaming in place of consoles. Nevertheless, unlicensed Famicom games continued to be developed and sold through China's black market well into the 2000s. Examples include Harry's Legend, a game loosely based on Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and Final Fantasy VII, a complete 8-bit remake of the PlayStation Classic. Nintendo also refused to give up, and decided to bank on a loophole. As it turned out, while Chinese law banned consoles, it didn't specify exactly what a video game console was. Nintendo entered a joint venture with Chinese-American software developer Wei Yen, create the company iQ Limited in order to circumvent regulations. The company released the iQ Player in 2003. To avoid breaking the law, the iQ Player housed all of its hardware within the controller itself and connected directly to the television. This allowed it to be marketed as a handheld plug and play gaming system rather than a video game console. Although it was released after the Nintendo GameCube, the IQ Player was essentially a handheld Nintendo 64. The IQ Player sold for just 598 won, or roughly 72 US dollars at the time. According to late president of Nintendo Satoru Iwata, this was intentional, stating, to reach a wide range of people in China, especially those inland who are not as rich as those in coastal areas, we thought we needed to deliver a cheaper console. The IQ Player came pre-installed with Dr. Mario 64, and included demos for Super Mario 64, Star Fox 64, Wave Race 64, and The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. These demos were timed and became permanently locked after running out the clock. In an effort to curb the rampant piracy plaguing China's video game industry, the IQ Player didn't use cartridges whatsoever. To get more games, consumers had to take their IQ player's rewritable memory card to an IQ depot kiosk. There, they could purchase and download games for around 48 won, or just under $6 each. Later, gamers could also directly connect their IQ player to the internet and buy games online via the IQ at home service, similar to Nintendo's virtual console. While the card could only hold a limited amount of data at a time, it stored the user's download. History, allowing them to re download purchases free of charge. Allegedly, Nintendo intended to bring more features, such as online multiplayer, to the IQ player as well, but these plans never materialized. Only 14 games were ultimately released for the IQ player, from classics like Mario Kart 64 and Paper Mario to more obscure titles like Sin and Punishment and Custom Robo. As each IQ player was the controller, games such as Super Smash Bros. could only be played in multiplayer mode through the use of the IQ Family Package. The device essentially served as a multi tap, allowing up to three additional IQ swim controllers to join in on the fun. The final game released on the IQ player was Animal. Animal Forest, or Animal Crossing as it's best known in the West. The title came out on June 1st, 2006, just over five months before the Nintendo Wii's launch in North America. Interestingly, the back of the IQ Player's box featured screenshots of The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, but the game was never officially released in China. As every single game had to be approved by the Chinese government before it could be legally sold, it's speculated Majora's Mask's dark themes may have led to the game being rejected. Estimates vary on how well the IQ Player sold, but it never became the runaway success that Nintendo had hoped. Today, the iQ player remains something of a collector's item, but it's also used by speedrunners for its quicker scrolling text and load times compared to the original Nintendo 64. This wasn't the only difficulty Nintendo faced within the Chinese market. Although Iwata announced plans to release the Nintendo Wii in China by 2008, the console was never officially released in the country. Whether the Chinese government blocked Nintendo's efforts or Nintendo simply gave up is unknown. Nevertheless, the Wii was popular in China's black market and spawned a host of knockoffs, such as the ba plug a plug-and-play gaming system marketed as an exercise machine. Nintendo didn't abandon the Chinese market, however, and continued to release special IQ branded versions of the Game Boy Advance, as well as the SP and Micro. As the GBA systems were handhelds rather than gaming consoles, the IQ Game Boys remained largely unchanged from their Japanese and Western counterparts. Iwata. Had had high expectations for the iQ Game Boy line, and hoped Nintendo could use them to break into the Chinese market within three to four years. This was not to be, as only eight games were ever released for the iQ Game Boy in China. That said, evidence exists that more games such as Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga had also been planned for release. Nintendo tried yet again with IQ versions of the Nintendo DS, DS Lite, and DSI. Curiously, while IQ DS games are region locked, the IQ DS itself can play DS titles from around the world. This is a handy feature as only 6 IQ DS games were ever released. Oddly enough, a Chinese localized version of Big Brain Academy was featured in trailers for the iQ Lite, but for whatever reason, never made it to the stores. Nintendo waited on the 3DS in China, only releasing an iQ version of the Nintendo 3DS XL. However, the IQ3DS XL's library fared even worse than the DS, as the only games released for the system were Mario Kart 7 and Super Mario 3D Land, both of which came pre installed. The system also lacked the ability to access the Nintendo eShop. The IQ3DS XL was likely hurt by its high price point of 1,699 yuan, or roughly 270 US dollars, especially in comparison to the Nintendo 3DS XL, which could be purchased in Hong Kong for about $225 US and had access to a larger library. In 2014, China officially lifted its ban on video game consoles. While Sony and Microsoft leapt at the chance to officially enter the Chinese market, Nintendo had other ideas. In an announcement that left investors scratching their heads, Iwata stated that rather than release the Wii U in China, Nintendo would develop new machines for the country instead. Iwata declared, we want to make new things with new thinking rather than a cheaper version of what we currently have. The product and price balance must be made from scratch. Meanwhile, then-president of Nintendo of America, Reggie fils remained neutral on the matter. When asked if the Wii U would ever make it to China, Reggie replied, China certainly is a market we're looking hard at. In order to be effective in China, you need the government to have a posture that is encouraging of our form of entertainment. You need a value proposition that makes sense for the consumer base. And thirdly, you need content that's going to appeal to the consumer base. When you see that we've got all three, we'll be in a market like China. Sadly, nothing came to fruition and neither the Wii U nor a new iQ system have been released in China. The Big N hasn't given up on China, though. In a bizarre move, Nintendo partnered with Nvidia and Aishiyi Yi to bring a selection of Wii titles to the Nvidia Shield in China in late 2017. Chinese gamers could experience Super Mario Galaxy, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, New Super Mario Bros. Wii, and Punch-Out! in 1080p for 68 yuan or 10 US dollars each. Rather than port the games to the Nvidia Shield directly, Nintendo and Nvidia created their own Wii emulator instead. Digital Foundry writer Thomas Morgan praised the emulator as, A long way beyond what the excellent Dolphin achieves. Nintendo really knows its own hardware, and has clearly collaborated closely with Nvidia in getting this release to run as well as it does. In spite of Nintendo's efforts, their Nvidia Shield games only managed to sell a combined 22,761 copies. as of March March 2019. In comparison, these games sold over 51 million copies combined worldwide on the Wii. More recently, the IQ website was quietly updated to redescribe the company as an official subsidiary of Nintendo focused on handling the development and localization of Nintendo's Switch games. After this and other mounting evidence, Nintendo's current president Shuntaro Furukawa officially announced a partnership with Tencent Holdings Limited to release the Switch which, in China, Furukawa isn't as optimistic as Iwata once was, admitting, In the past, our dedicated video game systems like the Nintendo DS and Nintendo 3DS were sold in China under the brand of IQ Limited, but we cannot say these were a great success. With that in mind, we decided to work closely with Tencent to do business in China. We recognize that the Chinese market is vast and attractive, but looking forward, we don't expect our video game business in China to easily expand. This is not a short-term plan, but something we want to work on steadily over multiple years. Since then, local officials in the Chinese province of Guangdong have approved Tencent's request to sell the Switch with a test version of New Super Mario Bros. U Deluxe. News of this development caused Nintendo's stock to soar, but it remains to be seen if the Switch's wild popularity in the rest of the world will translate to China.
3: Did you know, Pikmin was NOT inspired by Shigeru Miyamoto's garden? Every Nintendo fan has heard the origin story of Pikmin, where Miyamoto was inspired by watching ants in his garden. However, in a 2011 interview on Japanese TV, Miyamoto admitted that wasn't actually true. The ant story was just a marketing gimmick, a simple way of explaining the concept of a completely new type of game. In reality, the creation process was much more complicated. For the first year of Pikmin's development, the game didn't include Pikmin or any creatures resembling ants at all. Instead, it starred two primitive life forms called Adam and Eve, who had a ball for a body, two eyes, and a nose. Miyamoto stated, At the beginning, the idea was just to look at their life. I thought it was an interesting idea. Watch their life was the theme. Give them love or make them fight. Act like God. Depending on the decisions, they could make a nest and have children. Players would watch on as Adam and Eve protected their village from dinosaurs and woolly mammoths. If successful, they'd breed and expand their village. Footage of that early prototype was never made public, but based on the developer's description, it sounds like a prehistoric version of SimCity on a smaller, more intimate scale. The developers eventually broadened the game to focus on 10 or 20 life forms instead of just two, but Miyamoto still had the Mario 128 tech demo floating around in his imagination, so he ordered for there to be over 100 creatures. The scale grew and grew until the prototype was made up of several villages, with the player wanting as many villagers to survive as possible. But if some died in the struggle, the game would continue. A player character, who later became Olimar, was added as a more interesting way of having a cursor. The creatures who ultimately became the Pikmin were first introduced as weapons the villager used as projectiles. At this point in development, the game wasn't set in a microscopic world. According to Miyamoto, the villagers were comparable to Primitive Man, and the Pikmin weapons were as big as cats. Eventually, the developers went to Miyamoto's neighborhood to snap photos of forests and caves to use for the game's background, and it was at that point someone suggested they make the villagers behave more like ants. The idea was greenlit, and the game was set on a new trajectory. Eventually, the Pikmin creatures supplanted the villagers, and the The project evolved into the game we know today. This is where Miyamoto came up with the fake story about his eureka moment watching ants in his garden. Years later, Miyamoto also admitted he drew some inspiration from Mule, a 1983 Atari game where players used dozens of robotic mules to extract resources from an alien planet. Mule even had mountain wampus players could hunt for extra resources, similar to how iridescent flint beetles in Pikmin reward players with pellets and nectar. At some point in development, Adam and Eve's names were changed to Piki, the Japanese measure word for animals. For example, Japanese people might say, I have two Peaky cats, or three Peaky dogs. When the plant creatures replaced the villagers, they took the name Peaky for themselves. But Nintendo ran into complications with the trademark, so they ended up changing the name to Pikmin. There were quite a few changes late in the game's development. Pre-release footage shows Olimar using his whistle to pluck Pikmin out of the ground. But Miyamoto thought the mechanic made harvesting too quick and easy, so he removed it two months before the game was finished. However, the whistle pluck feature is still hidden in the game's internal data, and you can even unlock it in the final game using cheat codes. And despite Miyamoto's reservations, the mechanic did eventually make its way into Pikmin 2 as the Pluckaphone. The world originally featured a lot more puzzles, but Miyamoto Miyamoto felt they made Pikmin feel too much like a game, rather than a living, breathing world, so he ended up removing a lot of them as well. Multiplayer was originally planned, with Shigeru telling Nintendo Power the original idea was based on red Pikmin versus blue Pikmin. A few unfinished two player stages can even be found in the game's data. References to a multiplayer option for the main campaign are also hidden in the data, but the mode was never finished. According to Miyamoto, there was another mode that didn't make the cut. In the release version, if the player fails to collect, at least 25 ship parts within the 30-day time limit, you get the game's bad ending. With Olimar's oxygen supply down to zero, he's forced to launch his unfinished rocket into space, but takeoff fails and the rocket plummets back down to the Pikmin planet. The bad ending was once meant to trigger a new mode featuring Olimar's ghost, where the player was forced to relive Olimar's memories. Originally, there was going to be more emphasis on replayability, with fans expected to play Pikmin from start to finish several times to experience all three endings. But ultimately, Olimar's ghost mode never got made. Instead, it was replaced with a cutscene showing the Pikmin rescuing Olimar from his crashed ship and turning him into a Pikmin. After the game launched in 2001, Miyamoto challenged his team to ride the wave of momentum and develop Pikmin 2 in just a single year. But development ended up taking almost three years. The massive delay was partly due to staff being temporarily shifted over to Wind Waker, which was already experiencing delays of its own, but the main reason Pikmin 2 took as long as it did came down to quality control. When Miyamoto stopped by mid-development to see what the developers had made so far, he thought the project was way too similar to Pikmin 1. He was so dissatisfied with the game's quality that he ordered the team to change direction, which had a significant impact on the release date. Just like the first game, the Pikmin team spent some time tinkering with a multiplayer campaign in the sequel, but once again ended up scrapping it. The game's director, Shiga Hino, explained why in a 2004 interview, saying, we did experiment with two two-player gameplay in the campaign, but we came to the conclusion that designing the entire single-player game around the possibility of a second player joining in would put limits on what we could do with the campaign. Ultimately, we decided to implement multiplayer separately by creating versus and cooperative maps. When Pikmin 2 was released around the world, a few dozen treasures were changed in different regions. For example, in Japan, the time capsule had a picture of a cat inside, and the orboreal frippery was changed to a red maple leaf in Europe, probably because some fans mistook the original design for a marijuana leaf. When Pikmin 1 and 2 were re-released on Wii years later, they were updated with new motion controls, graphical enhancements, and an improved save system. But according to Shigefumi Hino, the Pikmin team discussed adding even more enhancements. Additional enhancements could have made the re-releases into something like a Pikmin 1 and 2 Deluxe, but Hino said Nintendo later told the Pikmin team both games should be released on Wii as soon as possible. So updates and enhancements were kept to a minimum. When the original Pikmin was in development, Miyamoto told his team that the next Mario is Pikmin. But after the game's release, sales turned out to be a massive disappointment. It only managed to sell a little over a million copies, and Pikmin 2 sold even less than that. For comparison's sake, Mario Sunshine sold over six million copies, and even Wind Waker, which Nintendo considered a commercial failure, sold more than three million. As a result, Pikmin 3 ended up pretty low on Nintendo's list of priorities. Development on Pikmin 3 consisted of just five team members conducting experiments on various hardware, including on Game Boy Advance and Nintendo DS. In a 2013 interview, he specifically mentioned a DS prototype that was never made public. Although we do have some idea what Pikmin DS looked like because Nintendo filed a patent for it in 2005, about three years before Miyamoto announced a new Pikmin game was even in development. The patent shows the player controlling groups of Pikmin by circling them with the stylus, ordering them to kill enemies, and carrying their carcasses back to the onion. The patent also shows Pikmin carrying pellets and mentions picking flowers. In short, it depicts a handheld version of the traditional Pikmin experience. However, Miyamoto described it as a new type of Pikmin game, so it seems there was more to Pikmin DS than what's revealed in the patent. Unfortunately, it was never greenlit for full-scale production. Instead, the handheld Pikmin game fans ended up getting was Hey! Pikmin, which didn't even manage to sell half a million copies and garnered an average review score of just 69%. After the Game Boy Advance and Nintendo DS testing, Miyamoto's team. also experimented with Pikmin 3 on 3DS. Then for quite a while they planned to release the game on Wii, but it wasn't until the Wii U came along that the small team was expanded to around 50 developers. According to Miyamoto, the Wii U's HD resolution was his inspiration to kick production into high gear, since it'd finally show each individual Pikmin with much greater detail. He also said Nintendo franchises like Zelda wouldn't have much to gain on a future 4K console, but 4K could be a huge benefit for the Pikmin series. The more clear Nearly you can see each Pikmin the more you care about them, and the more anguish you feel when your mistakes get them killed. During Pikmin 3's development, Miyamoto had the debuggers make sure the game could be completed without losing a single Pikmin. In his mind, Pikmin's sort of a mix between F-Zero and Saving Private Ryan, telling Japanese outlet 4Gamer that Pikmin can be more heartbreaking than a war movie. In Saving Private Ryan, a World War II general orders a team of soldiers to march across German-occupied France to save just one. Man, several of them die in the process, which Miyamoto likens to the player trekking across PNF 404 at sunset to save one lost Pikmin. Like the general in the film, it's up to the player to decide those types of ethical questions for themselves. Miyamoto also produced the F Zero series and hopes fans will think of his racing games when they're playing Pikmin 3. Competing for the highest scores and quickest times by replaying again and again, especially in mission mode. About 30% of the team's ideas didn't end up making it into the game, like on online versus mode. Miyamoto said, we gave up on that. We wanted to include it in Pikmin 3, but we would have had to make other sacrifices to include it. So we've decided to focus on the single player and local multiplayer aspects, which are really fun. But unfortunately, no online multiplayer for Pikmin 3. A fourth playable character, codenamed D in concept art, shown at E3 2012, was also scrapped. But even before D was created and cut, Miyamoto originally planned to include Olimar. He said, actually, when we showed Pikmin 3 at last year's E3, there were four captains. But when you have four playable characters, it becomes too complicated to switch between them. So, in the end, we decided to reduce it to just three captains. Even though I made that decision myself, up until the middle of development, I still thought Olimar would be playable. Olimar wasn't a playable character in Pikmin 3 on Wii U, but he did make it back into the game seven years later, along with Louie in Pikmin 3 Deluxe's side stories. But what about the question fans have been wondering for years? Where is Pikmin 4? When GameSpot asked me in 2016, he told them, When we're in development, we have to create a list of priorities, and it has been hard to kind of fit Pikmin 4 into that list. Then a year later, he told Eurogamer, I've been told not to share anything about this from PR, but I can tell you it is progressing. After the disappointing sales of Pikmin 1 and 2, a third game was such a low priority it took Nintendo almost a decade to finish. And just like its predecessors, the third game barely managed to sell a million copies. As a result, Pikmin 4 is probably still in its early days, the same way Pikmin 3 spent five years with a skeleton crew experimenting with different ideas. With any luck, future hardware with higher resolutions might reignite Miyamoto's enthusiasm, or outstanding sales of Pikmin 3 Deluxe could provide Nintendo justification to devote their resources. Failing those two possibilities, fans eagerly anticipating Pikmin 4 might be in store for another long winter ahead.
4: Did you know? The original Kid Icarus was almost developed entirely by a single person. Game developer Toru Osawa approached the higher-ups at Nintendo with a proposal for a new action game. Even though Osawa was an unproven rookie, his proposal was approved. Although he had a positive start, Osawa began to feel neglected by his co-workers and ended up creating the game's design document and sprite single-handedly. Yoshio Sakamoto, another designer at Nintendo, finished work on Metroid while Kid Icarus was in development. He returned from vacation to find Osawa alone, slaving away on Kid Icarus in the middle of summer. Realising that the project stood no chance for meeting its December deadline, Sakamoto brought the Metroid team on board to finish the title. And since both games used the same engine, the Metroid team were an actual fit. The bulk of the game was created during a torturous work cycle spanning several months. Staff members worked around the clock and even slept on cardboard boxes in the office during all-nighters. The building's heating was turned off after business hours to conserve energy, making autumn nights particularly harsh. Osawa also got married during this time and requested three days off for his honeymoon, but the game was so far behind schedule that he was called back into work on the second day. Production continued through December and didn't end until just three days before the game was planned to release. Despite not considering it complete, Osawa was forced to submit the game for printing. He was simply told, "If this doesn't have any bugs, it's finished." The North American version of Kid Icarus was released several months later and received some extra polish. This included a staff role at the end of the game and coloured backgrounds for the game's ending cutscenes. Both versions include the same four basic endings where Pit is transformed into various forms ranging from a lowly farmer to a fully-fledged angel depending on the player's performance. The US release includes a fifth ending, not found in the Japanese version, where Pit receives a kiss from the goddess Palutena. Similarly, the Japanese release also features its own fifth ending where Pit is transformed into a Specno. Kid Icarus was released on the Famicom Disk System in Japan, making it technically superior to the Western version. Most notably, the Disk System version had three save slots for players to use, and also tracked high scores. The NES version instead used a password system to save progress. There's a hidden feature in both versions where the player can haggle with the shopkeeper to lower the prices of items. On the disc system, this was done by talking into the controller's built-in microphone. NES players would instead have to press both the A and B buttons on a second controller. The 3D Classics re-release of Kid Icarus on the Nintendo eShop was based on the disc system version and included its enhanced features. Several aspects of Kid Icarus' design were inspired by Osawa's own life. The overall setting and enemies came from his interest in Greek mythology, and the Specnos enemy was inspired by the prominent nose of the game's composer, Hirokazu Tanaka. The game's Eggplant Wizard was spawned from Asawa's own love of eggplants, but was also a reference to the Eggplant Men in Wrecking Crew. There was also a type of enemy introduced in Kid Icarus known as Kometos, which bear a striking resemblance to Metroids in both design and behavior. The name Komato actually comes from Kometoro Ido, meaning Metroid Child. The game's sequel, Kid Icarus of Myths and Monsters, was released in 1991 in North America and Europe. However, it wasn't released in Japan until 2012. Japan's first chance to play the game was through the 3DS Virtual Console. Following the release of Myths and Monsters, the series was dormant for almost 20 years. Although no games were published during this time, there was at least one attempt to revive the series. For a year, starting in March 2007, game developers at Factor 5 worked on a grittier, more mature reimagining of the series. The project had the codename Icarus, and was planned to be a third-person shooting game with flight combat elements. Little progress was made and Nintendo was seemingly unsatisfied with the direction Factor 5 were taking and decided against turning Factor 5's project into a full game. After the release of Super Smash Bros. Brawl in 2008, former Nintendo president Satoru Iwata took Brawl's director, Masihiro Sakurai, out for dinner. Iwata revealed that Nintendo had been working on a new handheld system, and asked Sakurai to help develop a game to show it off. Sakurai immediately began brainstorming ideas for the game and settled on a concept for a shooter game. He wanted the player to engage in air battles on the way to a destination, which would then turn into a ground battle. Initially conceived as a new franchise, Sakurai wondered if the game should be part of an existing series. Iwata told him to do whatever he pleased, so the decision was made to retool the project as a revival of an older property. One of the franchises Sakurai considered was Star Fox, however he wanted flight to be shown from multiple angles, with the character being able to turn around or even fly sideways. Sakurai felt this dynamic movement didn't fit Star Fox, presumably because the series uses less agile machines and sticks to a single perspective during gameplay. Kid Icarus story of an angel who couldn't fly seemed to be a perfect fit for his concept of air battles transitioning to land, so the project became Kidicarus Uprising. Nintendo's new handheld, which would then become the 3DS, was far from finalized at this point, and Sakurai was the first person outside of the company to know of its existence. Because of this, there were no development tools available, and the team started out making the game on PC and even the Wii. Sakurai personally disliked games where story took precedence over gameplay, so in order to ensure development on Uprising went smoothly, he wrote the entire script himself, with every character in the story being designed around their gameplay. The script originally included three additional chapters that were scrapped, early in development. While he wanted the game to feel fresh, Sakurai also wanted to make it feel part of the Kidakura series. He boiled down the series' appeal to three main elements, the difficulty, the music, and the silliness of the game setting. These three concepts formed the core principles around which Uprising was designed. Kid Icarus Uprising is known for numerous nods and references throughout the game, but few are harder to find. On the Game Over screen, for instance, holding down on the D-pad or circle pad will cause an 8-bit Grim Reaper from the original Kid Icarus to appear. And in Chapter 5, there's a level 8 intensity gate that leads to a room with images of a shop from the original Kid Icarus on the walls.
5: Did you know? The original F-Zero was developed in only 15 months. This relatively short development period was put in place to make sure F-Zero was a Super Nintendo launch title, and that the system's pseudo-3D Mode 7 graphics were showcased from day one. A direct sequel to F-Zero was originally planned for the Super Nintendo, but it was cancelled. However, the unfinished sequel was touched up and released exclusively in Japan as BS F-Zero Grand Prix for the Super Nintendo Satellaview add-on. The game featured a new league, along with new tracks like Mute City 4, and introduced four new playable vehicles, the Blue Thunder, the Luna Bomber, the Green Amazon, and the Fire Scorpion. An additional sequel called BF's F-Zero Grand Prix 2 was also released on the Satella View and showcased five new tracks. There's been a few F-Zero titles that were never released outside of Japan. One example is an expansion kit for the F-Zero X that was released on the Nintendo 64 disc drive. This expansion gave players access to a track editor, a custom vehicle creator, a new cup, and a new soundtrack presented in stereo sound. In addition to this, there were three new vehicles to select. The Super Falcon, the Super Stingray, and the Super Cat. These were upgrades of the White Cat, the Fire Stingray, and the Blue Falcon. Though the Nintendo 64 Disk Drive and its games weren't released in the West, the Super Falcon can be found in the regular F-Zero X ROM files. The vehicle can be accessed using a Game Shark device, suggesting that both Nintendo 64 Disk Drive and the expansion kit were intended for a release outside of Japan at one point. The game was never localized due to the commercial failure of the Nintendo 64 Disk Drive. A direct sequel to the Game Boy Advance game F-Zero GP Legend was released exclusively in Japan called F-Zero Climax. Like the F-Zero X expansion kit, the game came with a track editor. Climax also introduced five new characters who were first seen in the F-Zero anime, which the game itself was based on. The Japanese version of F-Zero GP Legend also came with an e-reader feature, allowing players to scan special cards that were sold separately. The cards let players unlock characters, new tracks, and challenges. This feature was dropped in the Western release of the game, possibly due to the waning popularity of the e-reader. All of the unlockable content was instead made available by completing in-game cups and challenges. There was also an F-Zero game in development for the Virtual Boy called Zero Racers, which was planned to release in Fall of 1996. The game was shown at E3, and even had in-game screenshots published in an issue of Nintendo Power. It would have featured three circuits, each consisting of five tracks and four playable vehicles. One of which was the Origami, a completely new vehicle. The game was cancelled, most likely due to the commercial failure of the Virtual Boy. The arcade counterpart of F-Zero GX, F-Zero AX, can be found within the data of F-Zero GX. Although AX isn't playable through conventional means, it can be accessed using a cheat device. A number of unused models can also be found within F-Zero GX's ROM. This includes a flag, a fairly detailed memory card, a pylon, test cones, and a coin. The coin was possibly intended for use within the Casino Palace track. Evidence of two unused tracks can also be found in the game's ROM. One of the tracks is labeled AUR and can be only found in the Japanese release. All that remains of the track is a dummy placeholder image, suggesting it was cut early in development. The second track is called Stage 00 and consists of the drivable area from the screw drive track with assets from Sand Ocean and the collision data from the Twist Road track. It's unlikely that the track was meant to be playable and was only in the game's code to stop the track viewer from crashing when it tried to load Slot 00. One course, which was shown at E3 in 2005 but didn't make it into the game, was a recreation of the track Silence from F-Zero X. In the international releases of F-Zero GX, many of the stage graphics and backdrops were either altered or blurred with all the Japanese text swapped over with alien symbols. The venue Casino Palace was originally named Vegas Palace in the Japanese release. The name could have been changed to avoid any connections with the real-life resort city Las Vegas. Multiple vehicles and characters in the series have also been renamed outside of Japan. Mighty Gazelle was originally named M.M. Gazelle, Octoman was originally called Octman, and the Skull was named Arbin Gordon. Blood Falcon's vehicle, the Blood Hawk, was originally called the Hellhawk. In maximum velocity for the Game Boy Advance, the vehicle's Windwalker and Sly Joker were originally called Crazy Horse and Dirty Joker in the Japanese release. As the Windwalker's pilot Nichi is a Native American, the name could have been changed due to the original name being viewed as racially insensitive. Two characters in F-Zero GP Legend also had their names changed in the West. Ryu Suzaku was changed to Rick Wheeler and Haruka Misaki's alias, Miss Killer, was renamed Luna Rider. This was likely done so that the game lines up more closely with the English dub of the F-Zero anime. Multiple characters in the F-Zero series have connections with other Nintendo franchises. Two of these characters are James McCloud and Mr. EAD. James McCloud has a similar appearance to the father of Fox McCloud from the Star Fox series, who is also named James McCloud. His biography reads that he was the leader of a flight squad known as the Galaxy Dog, and that he later converted his combat plane into an F-Zero racer to compete in the Grand Prix. Mr. EAD appears to resemble Nintendo's mascot, Mario, and features his iconic mustache as well as a Starman on his belt. Name comes from Nintendo's Entertainment Analysis and Development division, which was abbreviated simply as EAD. This division of Nintendo also developed most of the main series Mario games, as well as F-Zero and F-Zero X. The character Octoman appears as a boss in Star Fox Command for the Nintendo DS, where he fights alongside the Angler Empire. He is, however, depicted as having only four arms instead of eight. One of the endings for the game also has Fox and Falco entering the G-Zero Grand Prix and converting their ships into G-Zero racers. In both F-Zero and Star Fox, the ships are equipped with G-Diffuser anti-gravity systems. The Arwing from Star Fox as well as F-Zero's Blue Falcon and the Fire Stingray also make cameo appearances in Super Mario RPG. In the Aeropolis venue, a giant Rob the Robot from the Port Town venue can be found hidden inside the outskirts behind the buildings. F-Zero GX also contains multiple references to Sonic the Hedgehog and other Sega franchises, as the game was developed by the Sega-owned developer Amusement Vision. In the bonus ending cinematic for Zoda, Eggman's glasses can be seen on the Mr. EAD Hulk, i from the Super Monkey Ball series can be seen on Billy's belt, and PJ's vehicle, the Groovy Taxi, is possibly a reference to the Crazy Taxi series. One event is often cited as a reference, but in fact isn't. Your place on the track is restored by a flying saucer after either falling off the track or getting destroyed it was previously thought that this saucer was being piloted by Chow. Now that we have access to better tools to examine the game's assets it's clear that these creatures aren't Chow at all.
6: Did you know? Nintendo was developing a Fire Emblem game for the Nintendo 64 disk drive simply titled Fire Emblem 64. Shigeru Miyamoto confirmed in an interview that work was progressing on the game and that it would most likely release after Mario RPG 2 in the latter half of 1998. It took until that time however for the game to be officially announced. By August of 2000, a different game titled Fire Emblem Maiden of Darkness appeared on listings for Nintendo's Space World event only months before Fire Emblem 64 was cancelled. Maiden of Darkness would release as Fire Emblem The Sword of Seals, but whether or not these two games are related is unknown. It's possible that assets from Fire Emblem 64 were used in Fire Emblem Path of Radiance for the GameCube, as suggested by early unpolished screenshots. That said, an even more complex theory exists regarding the disappearance of Fire Emblem 64. Around the release of the fifth game in the franchise, Fire Emblem Thoracia 776 series creator Shozao Kaga left Intelligent Systems to create his own company, Tiernanog. Their first game would be Emblem Saga, a successor to the Fire Emblem series for the PlayStation. However, just before the game's release, the title was changed to Tier Ring Saga, and the in-game emblem items were left unused, though they remain in the game's code. While these changes were likely implemented to avoid a lawsuit from Nintendo, the lawsuit came anyway and Tiernanog had to pay a hefty fine for violating the law of unfair competition, a law which protects against the unauthorized use of intangible assets not protected by trademark or copyright laws. As a result of these events and their chronological proximity, it's speculated that the cancellation of Fire Emblem 64 and Tier Ring Saga are linked. Although many assume Fire Emblem came to the West thanks to Martha Roy's appearance in Super Smash Bros. Melee, boosting the series' popularity, it was also due to the success of Advance Wars. In an interview with Edge magazine, the director of Advance Wars, Kintaro Nishimura, stated, It seems that Advance Wars shifted Nintendo's attitude over Western tastes. This is understandable, as both games have similar strategy elements and presentation. The first game in the series to come to the West was Fire Emblem on the Game Boy Advance. This game, which was actually the seventh in the series, began the trend of making Western releases of Fire Emblem a bit easier than the the original Japanese versions. In the Japanese release of Fire Emblem, titled Fire Emblem Blazing Sword, players can link up to a copy of Fire Emblem The Sword of Seals. If the games are linked, Lin's story, which serves as a sort of tutorial and prologue, can be skipped. The Sword of Seals was never released outside of Japan, so this wasn't an option for Western players. For them, Lin's story is mandatory. Along with that, many of the game's bosses had their stats slightly lowered overall. In the next game, Fire Emblem The Sacred Stones, some of the characters had increased growth rates as well as base stats. Then in Fire Emblem Path of Radiance, the base Base stats of some units are boosted as well, and the maniac difficulty is removed entirely and replaced with an easy difficulty easier than the normal difficulty of both games. Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn, however, disposed of this trend and included the normal, hard, and maniac difficulties, but named them easy, normal, and hard in the Western release, a decision which might have led to the critical complaints about the game's difficulty. On the subject of difficulty, Fire Emblem Awakening came with a bit of controversy over the inclusion of casual mode, a mode of play which removed the permanent character death the series was known for, just as it was among fans the inclusion was heavily debated within Intelligent Systems. In an interview, Fire Emblem Awakening's project manager, Masahiro Higuchi, stated that he was on the side that we shouldn't include casual mode to the end. However, Awakening wasn't the first Fire Emblem game to feature casual mode. It was introduced in the Japan-only release, Fire Emblem, New Mystery of the Emblem, Heroes of Light and Shadow. It's likely that this mode was included as Intelligent Systems was faced with the possibility of Fire Emblem Awakening being the final installation in the series. Due to the declining sales of recent games in the series, Fire Emblem Awakening, would be the last game in the franchise if it didn't sell at least 250,000 copies. In response to this, the developers wanted to include as many features as they could such as downloadable content, marriage, children, a player avatar, and the return of casual mode. Having the game take place in the modern-day, real-world setting was even suggested, but dismissed for fear of alienating long-time fans. The game has sold over a million copies worldwide to date and broken several previous sales records for the franchise. In Fire Emblem Path of Radiance and Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn, Rayson, Leanne, and Beaulieu speak in ancient tongue as demonstrated by a unique font to represent their dialogue. The text is in all English despite how intricate the font looks, so the character's dialogue can be easily translated. This language can also be found in the background of some of the menus in Path of Radiance, which when translated read, Doubt that the stars are fired, Doubt that the sun does not move, Doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. This is a direct quote from Hamlet's love poem to Ophelia from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Fire Emblem Path of Radiance contains quite a bit of cut and hidden content. There's a set of icons from the Super Nintendo and GBA games in its data. Despite the game being on the GameCube, the icons are from genealogy of the whole wore it on, but don't have the same palette as it did in those games. Path of Radiance is unrelated to any previous Fire Emblem game, so it's likely that these icons were merely placeholders. Path of Radiance also featured the ability to link up to Fire Emblem the Sword of Seals in the same fashion that the Blazing Swords did, but had to disable it in the Western releases for the same reason. The character illustrations from the Sword of Seals are still in the game's data, but cannot be accessed without cheat codes. While stats for many of the NPCs who appear in Path of Radiance can be found via cheat codes, there is also a set of stats for a character named Heather who does not appear in Path of Radiance, but is playable in Radiant Dawn. Fire Emblem contains an impressive amount of references to various mythologies, historical figures and geographical locations. Marth, from the storylines which take place on the fictional continent of Urchinea, is named after Mars, the Roman god of war. In the continent of Yggdrål, the setting for Genealogy of the Holy War and Thoracia 776, virtually every character and location is based on Norse and Celtic mythology. Yggdrål itself is derived from Yggdrasil, known as the World Tree in Norse mythology. During the desperate development period for Fire Emblem Awakening, the developers entertained the idea of taking the story to the planet Mars, but Higuchi swiftly shot the idea down. This was perhaps a result of the references to Roman mythology in previous titles. The release of Super Smash Bros. Melee helped finalize Mars' name in the West, but not before a Fire Emblem anime featuring a Prince Mars was released in Japan in 1996. The anime is based on the third game, Fire Emblem Mystery of the Emblem, and only consists of two episodes. A dubbed and subtitled version of the anime was released in America in 1997, six years before the first Fire Emblem game would see the same treatment. It's thanks to this anime Anime, the Japanese voice actor for Prince Mars, Hikaru Midorikawa, now does the voice of Martha in the Super Smash Brothers series as well. Spring?